If you want a deeper relationship with God, then learn to trust His promises. The Promise Code by O.S. Hawkins will help you understand how to count on God's promises. And it's yours with a gift of any amount to Turning Point this month. When you give $60 or more, you'll receive the Promise Code set, which includes Esther's CD album, study guide, historical chart, and Bible promises at a glance booklet. Learn more and donate when you go to davidjeremiah.ca. For as long as the Jewish people have existed, others have sought their destruction, even though God has constantly cursed all who come against them. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah continues the story of Esther with the profile of Haman, the first biblical ruler who tried to exterminate the Jews. From the series, Esther, for such a time as this, here's David to introduce his message, Haman's Conspiracy. Well, friends, from the very beginning of this story, we knew God was preparing something uniquely uh, wonderful for his people. He raised up a godly, strong woman who's going to stand in the way of the destruction of the Jewish people. But she will have to be involved in a very wicked conspiracy from a man by the name of Haman. We're going to learn about him in the third chapter of Esther as we open our Bibles in just a moment. Let me remind you again that you can get all the material on the book of Esther simply by going to our website. There you will see uh, the study guide. You'll see that we have a set of CDs that go with the study guide. And you can get this material for your own Bible study, for your small group studies, and be ready to look into this Old Testament book, which is so intriguing and especially uniquely wonderful for women's Bible studies. So many times... um, They feel left out in some of the studies that we do. You sure can't be left out in this one. This is all about a godly woman who stood up for the Lord in a time of crisis. Uh, This is available from Turning Point. You can go there today, davidjeremiah.org. Well, today we begin the sort of the backside of the story. Today we meet a man who was out to destroy the people of God. His name is Haman. This is his conspiracy. Adolf Hitler boasted at the end of his year of greatest triumphs in these words. He said, God up to now has placed the stamp of approval on our battle. The year 1941 will bring completion of the greatest victory of our history. Adolf Hitler came from a miserable background. In his early years, there was a sense of degradation that gnawed at his soul. He sought endlessly for deference and security. Along the way, he found relief in his hatred of various groups of people, including the Jews. In Mein Kampf, he is said to have made the statement, as his hatred of the Jews grew, he said, I was transformed from a weekly world citizen into a fanatic anti-Semite. Hitler didn't know, obviously, that God had spoken to Abraham some words to make Hitler's victory impossible. God had said, I will make of you, Abram, a great nation, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. God was speaking, of course, of the Jewish nation, which Hitler had put his hand out to destroy. And in doing so, the Nazi leader doomed himself For within a few short years, Hitler and his military might were destroyed. 
But Hitler is just perhaps the most famous among many who have set out to destroy God's people. We're going to meet one that we may not know about. His name is Haman, and his is the story in the third chapter. As we look at chapter 3 of the book of Esther, we notice first of all in verses 1 through 6 the prejudice of Haman. Now let us read verses 1 through 6. After these things did King Ahasuerus, we know that to be Xerxes, promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Now you remember that Mordecai is the one who was used of the Lord to see that Esther became the wife of Xerxes. Esther is now positioned in the kingdom because of the influence of Mordecai in her life and in the kingdom itself. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? And it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Now, here we are introduced to a man by the name of Haman. He is one in a long line of those who have led in the campaign of anti-Semitism. He is promoted in Persia by King Xerxes to a position that would correspond probably to that of prime minister. He is now above all of the others who are in the king's cabinet, and it is required of all who pass by this man that they do reverence and bow down. Haman is brought on the scene, and he will occupy a large place in this book. He is, to all of the Jews of this day, the most scorned and hated of men. Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the Jew's enemy, is his significant title. When his name is mentioned even now, Orthodox Jews spit and curse him. So hateful is his memory. Now, as we read these few verses, we need to note under the prejudice of Haman the reason for his prejudice. Why was he so prejudiced against the Jews? The reason for this is given to us in just one word that we might pass over quickly if we do not study the history of the Old Testament. We are told in this text that Haman was an Agagite. Saul, you remember, in 1 Samuel 15 was given instruction by Samuel to go up against the Amalekites and to utterly destroy them. If you get a chance sometime and you can go back and read 1 Samuel 15, you will discover that the story in that chapter is one of the reasons why there is such hatred in the heart of Haman for all of the Jews, even when the generation later has taken place. 
The reason is given, and let me just read some selected portions from 1 Samuel 15. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go, said the Lord to Saul, and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not. And Saul smote the Amalekites, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, for which he was sharply rebuked by the prophet, who himself, we are told, hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now when you go back and read Esther chapter 3 and you discover that Haman was an Agagite, you realize that he is from the lineage of the Amalekites who were hated enemies of the Jew. The probability is that the tradition in his race was just as strong as the Jewish tradition. And the word had come down to Haman that Samuel had hewn in pieces Agag. And there was great hatred for Samuel and all of the Jewish people because of what had been done to this wicked king. Now that is the reason probably behind Haman's hatred and his prejudice against the Jews. But let me just pause for a moment and say that in the lives of many people today, there does not need to be a reason. There is a built-in hatred for Jewish people in the hearts of many people. But having explored one of the possible reasons for Haman's prejudice, let's look secondly at the result of his prejudice. What does he do? We do not know Haman's background. We bump into him in this book rather abruptly. We do know that he showed a ridiculous need for appreciation. He had to be bowed down to it. It meant a great deal for him to have that experience. And Apparently, of all those who were required to do it, there was only one who wouldn't, but that one just drove Haman crazy. He could have continued as prime minister to the king of Persia if he'd have just been content to let that one man go, but he couldn't do it. He was obsessed and was willing to lose everything in order that he might punish the one person who had refused to bow down before him. And as we see what happened, we read that when Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, he was filled with rage. And he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Now, you see, for the first time, it has become apparent to Haman and to others in the kingdom that Mordecai is a Jew. So now, Mordecai, who is a Jew, is about to become the focus of anti-Semitism. And Haman realizes that since Mordecai is a Jew, perhaps this is his opportunity to vent his wrath on all of the Jews. And he will not just get Mordecai in this plot, but he'll get all the Jews in Persia. And that was his goal. Haman's action was the first recorded effort to exterminate the Jews in the Bible. Pharaoh tried to limit their numbers by ordering the massacre of male babies, but he never tried to exterminate the whole race. Various tribes in Cana resisted the Jewish invasion, and Nebuchadnezzar carried the nation away into captivity. But until this place in the Bible, there is no attempt on the part of anyone to exterminate the whole Jewish race. And that was obviously what Haman's purpose was in this whole action. The word destroy here in the text literally means to wipe out. 
It occurs frequently in the book of Esther, and Haman could easily have rid himself of one unyielding Jew, but he wanted to wipe out the whole race. He was filled with wrath. He equated Mordecai with the whole Jewish nation, and even though he could have just dealt with Mordecai individually, he chose rather to use Mordecai as a springboard to destroy all of the Jews that he hated. In his distorted vision, he didn't see the hundreds of humble Jewish artisans and craftsmen. He didn't see the unoffensive women and children. All he saw was one Jew who insulted him, and he indicted an entire race because of one man. Unwittingly, he became the picture of prejudice for us to study today. And prejudice is like that, is it not? Prejudice exaggerates one person into an entire race. It blows everything out of proportion. It gets more unreasonable as time goes by until a person who is filled with racism and prejudice has lost all sense and rationality completely. When a person gets in their head that they are going to be prejudiced, they lose all sense. And you've been around people like that, haven't you? How we stereotype races. I wish I had time just to preach a message on that, but let me preach just a little one. God says we're to overcome prejudice in our hearts and we're to put away all wrath and all malice and all slander. We should be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. And the Old Testament gives very careful instruction on how to treat the stranger, the person who is different from yourself. You are instructed not to do him any wrong, to treat him as a native and to love him as you love yourself. The New Testament word for hospitality is, listen to this, it is made up of two Greek words, phileo and xenia, which means the lover of strangers. That's what hospitality is, according to Romans 12, 13. Jesus said, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brethren of mine, you did for me. He meant his brothers according to the flesh, the Jews, or brothers according to the spirit, believers. What God tells us is we're to have love in our hearts for all people of all races. Haman was filled with prejudice, and because of that, he constructed a plot to destroy the Jews. So first of all, we see the prejudice of Haman, and secondly now, we see the plot to destroy the Jews, verses 7 through 9. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them or to allow them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business, to bring it unto the king's treasuries. Now we learn, first of all, from the seventh verse that five years have passed since Esther has become queen. Haman has paused to learn the most propitious time for wiping out the Jewish nation. 
It was Nisan, or roughly April, which is the first month of the year in the Persian calendar. And the Persians believed in their history. They believed that the gods at the first of each of their year would come together to fix the fates of men. And Haman called in the soothsayers and the witches and all of the astronomers and the brain trust. And they cast stones or painted or carved stones with markings like dice. Perhaps they used pieces of wood or strips of papyrus or parchment. And they cast these each day like we would play the lottery or like we would cast dice. And the experts in Persia cast these lots for each day of the year to find which would be the luckiest day on which they could exterminate all of the Jewish race. It's very interesting to discover that the word poor, literally it's pronounced as if it were spelled P-O-O-R, even though it's spelled P-U-R. The word poor comes from a primitive root meaning to crush, to break, to bring to naught. In order to determine the right day on which to destroy all the Jews, they did what we often refer to as casting lots. That's what it meant when it talks about poor. They used this then to decide through their system of magic which would be the luckiest day on which they could determine ahead of time that the destruction of the Jews would take place. It's interesting that the Bible says even this pagan process is in the hands of God, doesn't it? There's a wonderful proverb, 1633, that says, A lot is cast into a lap, but how it will come out is decided by the Lord. Even the Lord is behind all of this. He doesn't approve it. He doesn't ordain it, but he still is in control of it, isn't he? And so the lot that was cast for the destruction of the Jewish people in this, which is known as the casting of poor, the lot was set, and though it may have seemed to the people and to Haman as if it was the right day, they will discover, much to their chagrin, that the day is the right day all right. It's the right day for the destruction of Haman and those who have conspired with him. Now, having chosen the day in verse 7, we read in verses 8 and 9 that Haman decides to communicate this to the king. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all the people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. Having decided on the day of destruction beforehand, Haman now goes into the presence of Xerxes, the Ahasuerus of Persia, and notice, he doesn't say a single word about his personal reasons for destroying the Jews. He does not even mention Mordecai by name. He doesn't bring any direct charge against him. He begins by saying there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. It is striking to see that Haman uses the very words that James uses when writing to the same people, addressing them as the twelve tribes scattered abroad. And the Apostle Paul writes to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus. They were scattered indeed. That was a part of their period of time before the Lord. They had been dispersed through all the nations, as somebody said, like seed cast in the ground, ready to sprout up, given the right situation. Haman moved, as prejudiced people do, from fact to fiction. Notice his words carefully. Some of his words are true. These folks, the Jews, are a different people. 
They do adhere to the law. They do observe special days. They do have feasts, and they do abhor the intermarrying of their people with the Persian people if they are truly Orthodox Jews. But having said all of that, there is nothing seditious in any of those words. What happens is Haman takes it one step further and says that the Jews have been in violation of King Xerxes' laws. That is not fact. That is fiction. History has proven that some of the most obedient citizens, no matter what culture they have been in, have been the Jewish people. They rarely have been the cause of trouble. The incidents of their problems in a culture are far, far fewer than average. But Haman has taken a little bit of fact, and because of his prejudice, he has blown it into fiction in order that he might accuse the people of God. Yes, it is true. People often felt insulted that the Jews wouldn't eat any food but their own. I'm sure that made some of the Persians open their eyes a bit. They were always observing some Sabbath or holiday. They ignored other people's holidays, which didn't make them popular. They wouldn't accept other people's daughters in marriage. They wouldn't give their daughters to other people in marriage. On the days when people wanted to do business with them, they shut up their stores. And the days other people wanted to observe holidays, they said were lawful days to do business and kept their stores open. But you see, Haman took all of that and moved that into a picture of treason in the Persian Empire, and that was absolutely a fabrication. He communicated this to the king. And so first of all, having communicated this to Xerxes, he now supposes a problem. And then, having supposed this problem, he suggests some motivation for King Xerxes to be involved in the extermination of the Jews. He literally says that he will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those that have charge of the business so that they can bring it into the king's treasury. He has set a bounty on the heads of the Jews, and he has said that he will pay to the king 10,000 talents of silver to those who carry out the extermination of the Jews and that that money will come into the coffers of King Xerxes. Now, can any of you think of a reason why King Xerxes might have been interested in that apart from the fact that he was probably a greedy man? You remember way back at the beginning when he had invited all of his visitors to the kingdom, he had entertained them the night that Vashti didn't show up when she was supposed to. You remember that? And the purpose for that was to expose all of these foreign rulers to his desire to fight a campaign against Greece. And he had fought that campaign. He had lost. It had depleted his resources. And obviously Haman knew that this kind of money would be very attractive to Xerxes, the Ahasuerus. And so he used some monetary motivation to get this king involved in the project of exterminating the Jews. Oh, by the way, how much is 10,000 talents of silver? To the best of my ability to understand it, a talent of silver was worth about $2,000. Therefore, 10,000 talents would be worth about $20 million. $20 million to kill all the Jews. And you think, well, that's quite a bit of money. But in that day, it was even a lot more money than it is in our day. So King Xerxes was tempted now with the price 
of somewhere between 20 and 25 million dollars to be involved in this process. You can see um, what's going on here and how evil it is. And you wonder, if you don't know the story, what is going to happen? Who is going to step in the middle of this and keep it from happening? We know it's a woman named Esther, and the story is in front of us as we continue our study in the book. Tomorrow, uh, Haman's Conspiracy Part 2. I hope you'll join us then. Friends, we are so excited about the things we have planned for the spring and, and the summer. Um, we are looking forward, first of all, to our rally in Boise, Idaho on April the 20th. That will take place in the Extra Mile Arena in Boise. And tickets are available at davidjeremiah.org slash tours. The tickets are free, but you have to have a ticket. And uh, when you order the tickets, we'll send them to you. You'll be ready to attend. We hope that if you live in that area, whether you have to drive a ways or if you're just really close, you'll make it your point to save that date and be ready to join us in April as we come to a place we've never been before for an event, a first-time-ever event in Boise, Idaho. Many wonderful, godly people live in that area, and we're looking forward to joining with them in a night of celebration. And then don't forget the cruise in July, the 15th to the 22nd. We're going to Alaska. James Brown, Tony Dungy will be with us, special guests, lots of good music, and teaching from the Word of God. And we'll see you right here tomorrow. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, Esther, for such a time as this, please visit our website. There you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected, our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of the latest book from leader and author O.S. Hawkins, The Promise Code. 40 Bible promises every believer should claim. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in a variety of attractive cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue Esther for such a time as this on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Have you ever wondered what your legacy will be? The Jeremiah Legacy Society from Turning Point was created for friends of the ministry who feel called to partner with Dr. David Jeremiah to deliver the unchanging Word of God to future generations. We can ensure that the impact we have reaches beyond our days here on earth. Visit our website at davidjeremiahgift.org to learn more about how you can be a part of the Jeremiah Legacy Society. If you enjoy listening to Turning Point with David Jeremiah, you'll be happy to hear that there is now a daily Turning Point television broadcast that you can watch each weekday. Tune in to Faith TV, Joy TV, or Miracle Channel Monday through Friday to watch the Turning Point daily television broadcast. Be sure to check your local listings for the channel and time in your area. Or visit davidjeremiah.ca forward slash TV to download a program schedule or watch at your convenience. That website again is davidjeremiah.ca forward slash TV. Catherine of Aragon was the first wife of King Henry VIII of England. 
After six pregnancies, Catherine was unable to give King Henry a son as an heir to the throne. Henry set Catherine aside and took Anne Boleyn as his wife. Catherine lived out her life in England, exiled from the court. Instead of retaliating or seeking vengeance, she entrusted herself, her character, and her reputation to God, living as the faithful wife she believed herself still to be. Faithfulness is proved when circumstances go against us. Faithfulness is the one quality the Apostle Paul said must be found in good stewards of God's grace. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's rewards for faithfulness on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.